Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950, talking to you from the bowels of the radio station in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, but we still like to just say it's Minneapolis. How are you? Welcome. Welcome to my show about idealism and idealists. Um, and if you're new, which I would love for you to be new, uh, welcome. This is uh, a different kind of radio take about the world, about trying to make the world a better place. And for those who are my regular, always standby listeners, oh my God, thank you and welcome back. I'm so happy to have you. We are in the middle of May. You know, spring has sort of arrived uh, to Minnesota, sort of, but, <laughs> you know, who knows? Um you know, and I'm back here with another edition of the show. Um, we've got a great show for you. Um, we're going to be revisiting an um, interview that I did with uh, uh, Dr. Mark Goulston, who talks about brain function and how idealism fuels us and turns on the receptors in our brain and gives us that little oxytocin kind of lift when we think that we're doing good for the world and for other people. So I think that uh, you'll like to hear that interview. And if you didn't catch it the first time back, way, way back in September of 2018, stay tuned because it's really good. What I want to talk about right now is not an idealist. Usually I'm featuring uh, somebody um, either contemporary or historical idealist, um, I want to actually feature a project. Um, it's, it's titled The 1619 Project. Maybe many of you have heard about this. This is something uh, that the New York Times, um, it was an initiative of the New York Times last August uh, that came out. But uh, the reason it's on my radar right now is that the project creator, a woman named Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, a couple of weeks ago was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for commentary for the 1619 Project. Uh, so Nicole Hannah-Jones is the project creator. Um, and I, uh, you know, the 1619 Project got on my radar immediately uh, when it came out in August. Uh, it is a project uh, that the Times published, what, more than 100 pages, consisting of 10 different essays by 10 different, Af uh, for the most part, African-American uh, writers or historians or commentary uh, commentators. What uh, I wanted to talk about and why I wanted to highlight this is that really, of all things that we've had in the last I don't know, modern era, it's the 1619 Project that at least helped uh, Americans focus on the idea that America was founded uh, on the backs of slaves, of enslaved people, that, um, and the 1619 Project took its name because it was the 400th anniversary of enslaved Africans arriving in uh, Virginia uh, to, you know, when... Uh, Back in, you know, when we still had Jamestown and all of that kind of stuff before, you know, America really got going. Uh, so it was a 400th year anniversary of that. Although, um, and I did not know this until I started uh, getting ready for this radio show, the actually the very first enslaved Africans to ever arrive in continent, what turned out to be the continental United States, uh, they arrived at a Spanish colony, which was situated either in South Carolina or Georgia in 1526. Uh, the reason that 
that's not on the historical radar is because those enslaved humans revolted. Uh, they broke free. Uh, the colony ended, uh, the Spanish colony ended, and uh, the enslaved humans then went to live with indigenous people. Uh, so, but think about this, that, you know, as long ago as 1526, um, humans, white, white color humans, were transporting enslaved Africans. These are humans of other skin color. Um, across the Atlantic. They were also, um, in 1690 and thereafter, they were enslaving indigenous people, American, what, Native Americans, later on became Native Americans, indigenous people. They were enslaving them and then exporting, quote-unquote, them uh, to the West Indies uh, for sugar plantations. So uh, this 1619 project, if you're not aware of it, please uh, go and look at it. Uh, you know, and the, and the, and the project, uh, challenges, uh, the idea that America started in 1776, it literally did start, um, before 1619, but particularly in 1619 on the black, on the back of enslaved humans. The project, uh, uh, consisted of historians and, and, you know, there was fact checking by historians and folks from the Smithsonian Institute, uh, and, um, and, and so there, there, I mean, this has got some very great historical accuracy to it. Uh, and you know, the idea also is that slavery is not historically portrayed in history books for our school students. Not at all. I mean, to the extent that it's even discussed whatsoever, uh, that does not mean that the 1619 project was not without, um, some criticism. Uh, there was one of the essays that um, uh, uh, argued that the revolution, the you know, the revolution that formed our country, uh, was in part about saving slavery as an institution. Uh, that caused uh, some uh, some discontent among historians, uh, you know. And the project itself has been politicized as by um, conservative media as just simply an instrument of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, so I mean, it's not without some degree of controversy, but that does not mean that the work of the project, the words that are embedded in the ideas that are embedded in the 1619 project aren't important. And uh, I think that it's very, very important that you read, I mean, you go to it, read all 100 pages that consist of the project with the different essays and um, commentaries and, and, you know, take it in. The problem is that most white-color Americans kind of forget, not kind of, we do forget that, you know, um, we only have to go back to the Emancipation Proclamation in um, 1861 or 62, I'm sorry, uh, my um, historical... um, uh, re- recitation is not as good as it should be, um, but we only have to go back that far to the Civil War to understand that we were that we white colored people in you know half the country were enslaving um, people who were not not of the white color. I mean, there were more than four million enslaved humans when uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in the United States. Four million. I mean, 
you know, in, in t- terms of today's uh, you know, world, I mean, that's more than the population of Iowa, more than the population of Iowa and Wyoming combined, <laughs> you know. And so we forget about this. And when we forget about it, we forget about um, how our country is so oriented towards white color people, white color institutions. So um, very important stuff from an idealistic standpoint. I think that we need to understand all of this because without understanding it, we can't understand the impetus, the real need to make a difference in our country, to change the way we are doing things. We're being reminded about that literally in this virus almost every day. Okay. All right. So that's the end of my, um, my A Block where I talk about idealism um, by other folks. Uh, we're going to go do that interview of Mark Goulston. I think that you will enjoy it. And then we'll come back and we'll do my C Block. Um, if you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Please talk about my work. I need to make a bigger mark in the world. Um, if you really want to communicate with me, you can email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com. Follow me on uh, Twitter at elliekrug. I'll be back in a sec. Thanks. And we are back on AM 950 on LE 2.0 Radio. Oh, my goodness. You know what? I think I could have talked all morning about Jose Antonio Vargas and the incredible work that he is doing. Hard to believe. Only 37 years old and thinking big. And talking about thinking big, it's now time for our big interview. And on the line, I have uh, Dr. Mark Goulston from California. Um, Dr. Goulston, how are you? I'm fine, Ellie. Good morning to you. Welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled to have you. And um, I always love to call people by their first name. So can I call you Mark or Dr. Mark? Is that all right? Uh, Mark is good. Okay. All right. So, Mark, um, welcome to Ellie 2.0 Radio. You are um, a psychiatrist uh, by trade. But you're also a, a writer, an author, a speaker. You've got all kinds of blogging going on, and this is not your first rodeo in terms of being on the radio or on media. Can you tell us a little bit about you? What is it that you you do? Because I have you here for a specific reason to talk about idealism, and I you'll fit my you'll fit my mold, I know. But let's hear what you do. Well, what I do now is I go around the world and I teach the world to listen to each other. I've written seven books and I'm humbled by how well they've been received. I wrote a book called Just Listen, which became the top book on listening in the world. And I speak around the world basically uh, helping people to not just listen to, but listen into people, uh, which is very different. And I think you listen into your guests because you drill into their big idea, their big dream, their big picture, and most of the world does not listen to people that way. Well, thanks for that. Um, I mean, you are you have quite a footprint, um, and um, and and I'm just uh, very very impressed. But you started out, um, if I have this right, um, in Massachusetts. You and I have some commonality about Boston. And um, and you went to medical school at uh, BU, which, of course, is a, a great rival to Boston College, but we won't need to get into that. But you went to medical school at BU, and then you, you found out 
while you were in medical school, what it meant to be human. And can you talk about that? And can you share how that may have shaped the way that you went forward in the world? Because this is about well, idealism and you are an idealist. So go on. Well, it shaped everything. I'm giving away my age, but I went to undergraduate school at UC Berkeley in the 60s, so you can figure out the math. But what was uh, in vogue was to be uh, cynical and sarcastic and to not believe anything. In fact, if you believed anything, you were foolish. Unfortunately, we're heading towards that again. Oh, yes. And I'm so glad for your show. Uh, so what happened is I went to medical school, and I think my biggest accomplishment in life, at least personal, is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I dropped out not to see the world, but I dropped out because I believe I had untreated depression. So what happened is I was highlighting all my books in yellow and not being able to retain what I read. So I took a leave of absence, worked in blue collar jobs. And I, I romanticized them. There, there was, I still think about those are the best jobs I ever had because I just, uh, I, I worked putting uh, displays into bars and liquor stores, and at 5 p.m. I was done. So um, right. I, I still look at the simplicity of it, and I met great barkeeps in South Boston. Uh, then I came back, and my mind worked for about three months, and then it all came back again. So I asked for another leave of absence, but I didn't realize that the uh, medical school loses money when someone takes a leave of absence. So to make a long story short, I met with the dean of the school who cares about money. Don't remember that. And I think I was at a low point. I don't know that I was considering, you know, offing myself, but I was at a low point because I came from a background that said, you're only as good as what you produce or do. And I get a call from a Irish Catholic uh, Boston dean of students, Dean William McNary, and he called me up and he said, uh, Mac, this is Mac. Better get in here, Mac. Mac, you better get in here. I got a letter from the other dean, Mac. So I go in there and I read the letter from the other dean. And it says, I've met with Mr. Goulston, uh, talked about a different career, perhaps the cello. That's how in touch the other guy was. I'm advising the promotions committee that he'd be asked to withdraw. And I'm at a low point. Uh, Ellie. And, right. And you don't need that. Mean? That's for sure. Yep. And I'm at a low point, which means and in my suicide work, a low point means you feel like you're going down and you're not coming back. And I said, what does this mean? He says, Mac, you've been kicked out. And what happened is it felt like a gunshot wound. I kind of folded over and uh, and it was my good fortune that all my cynicism and sarcasm had left me. And also, I wasn't pathetic. I just I, I kind of folded over, and I felt my cheeks, and I thought I was bleeding from my eyes. So I kind of see this as a resurrection almost. And, and then this is what this angel, and I believe he's an angel, and I'm not that religious. This is, what, this is what this angel said to me. And I come from a background that says you're only as good as what you can do. He said, Mac... Uh, you didn't screw up, but you are screwed up. But if you got unscrewed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. So I start crying with the kindness. And then he says, Mark, and even if you don't get uh, unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you because you've got a streak of goodness in you that mm. we don't grade in med school. 
and you don't know how much the world needs that goodness, and you won't know it till you're 35, but you gotta make it to your 35. And, and then he said, look at me, because I couldn't look at him, I was too busy crying. And he said, you deserve to be on this planet, and you're gonna let me help you. Oh. So it flipped, it flipped everything, Ellie. So I think I might've gone down for the count, yeah. and if he had said, call me if I can help you, I never would've called him. And so it's, it's, that's my understanding of where people go when they're suicidal, where they just start to plummet. They lose hope. And right. they feel the next step is they're going to just fall apart. But before I hit that next step, he saw a future value and goodness in me that I didn't see. Plus, he stood up for me at his own peril against the school. I mean, he was just an anatomy instructor, and he, he arranged an appeal for me to the promotions committee. So all that taken together, uh, it changed something in me. It flipped the switch. <laughs> and I'll tell you, Ellie, when, when, a, when an angel enters your life to save your life, <laughs> it changes who you are, but you are compelled to pay it forward. So that's what I'm currently doing now in my, in my push to, uh, to prevent suicide and, and give hopeless people hope and teach other people to do that for them. Well, and when we come back from our break, I want to talk about that work. And um, I also want to talk, you know, a little bit about, to the extent that you can, the physiology that goes with being an idealist. Because I've got to tell you, as an idealist, I, I have um, this thing that just won't leave me alone. But we're going to have to wait till we come back from our break and talk about that. This is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio. We've been talking with Dr. Mark Goulston from California about the, the makings of him as an idealist. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com or email me at elliejkrug at gmail.com. I love hearing from my listeners. And um, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in a second. Thank you. We are back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. That would be me, Ellie Krug. How are you, listeners? And we have on the line, um, I'm interviewing uh, from California, Dr. Mark Goulston, a psychiatrist, uh, the author of a book, uh, Just Listen, which is ranked number one of all, in six different Amazon and Kindle categories, translated into 14 languages. And before we broke... Mark, we were talking about your experience in Boston, an angel coming into your life, someone who helped flick a switch for you that changed the trajectory of your life, the way that you were going to view and go forward in the world. And so my question for you, doctor of psychiatry, what is it about idealists that set us apart? Why, is it, why are some people idealistic? And why are some people, our theme today is about thinking big. Why are some people willing to do that big thinking um, in order to make the world a better place? Well, I'm also a neuroscientist. And so I like to explain things uh, by neuroscience and I'll try and make it uh, not too, uh, without too much jargon. That's because I want to get buy-in from all the naysayers who feel this stuff, including idealism, is just too soft. 
so I'm going to hit you with my best shot. Okay. So, uh, so, so what goes on in our head when we're stressed is we have an adrenal hormone called cortisol, and cortisol goes way up. And what happens when cortisol goes way up and we're stressed, there's something in our middle brain, in the emotional part of our brain called an amygdala. And the amygdala hijacks us <clears throat> into our lower brain. And in fact, if they do MRIs, people who are stressed and distressed, the blood flow is left to their prefrontal cortex and it's going to their survival middle brain and lower brain. That's where that's survive. where that's where fight or flight response kicks in, right? That's that's exactly. And so they're not able to think because they're not having blood flow going to the thinking part of their brain. But what most people don't know is that the antidote to high cortisol is oxytocin, which is uh, the bonding hormone. It's what and at its peak, it's what causes mothers to bond and love these screaming infants that keep them up all night. And and what's interesting is when oxytocin goes up, cortisol goes down, people's fight-or-flight amygdala hijack calms down, blood flow goes to their upper brain, and they're able to consider options. One of the reasons that female energy... Uh, la, uh, 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 people with that often live longer than ma- uh, masculine energy is that masculine energy, when it's under stress, has high cortisol, pulls away, gets a little bit paranoid because they're vulnerable, and then they come back and they attack a problem, but their cortisol level stays high, and the cortisol over time breaks down nerve membranes. I, uh, you know, so people I, who are, right, go ahead, sorry. So people who are, and I'm not going to get into politics, but people who are into power for long term, uh, their brain cells are being broken down by the high cortisol level. And what happens with female energy is they uh, they know that if they can feel felt, if they can be feel close to someone, what happens is, uh, and that's why uh, female energy, when it talks, really doesn't want to have a solution or advice. It wants to not just feel understood, but feel felt. My book, Just Listen, and my work with suicidal patients for 20 years, none of whom killed themselves, the secret was getting to where they were and feeling, helping them to feel felt, which is what the dean of students did in the first segment we talked about. He just got right into my what I call despair, meaning feeling unpaired with reasons to live, hopeless, helpless, worthless, powerless, meaningless, pointless. And when you keep someone company uh, and, and you bond with them, their oxytocin goes way up, their cortisol goes down, and they begin to be able to think again. And I think all idealists uh, have a lot of oxytocin going in them. So in other words, they, they truly care and feel for their fellow human beings. Uh, and, and that connection to humanity uh, helps fuel their idealism. Well, and so, so everything, I love it. I love what you've just described and you've done it in a really easy to understand, <clears throat> excuse me, understand way. And 
you know, I had, you know, part of my work, what I do as my listeners know is that I go and speak about human inclusivity across America. And, you know, we, diversity is about numbers, but my definition of inclusivity is just the extent to which a human feels that they matter, that they matter to an organization that they are employed by or that they're affiliated with or, you know, a group of humans generally that they just feel as if they matter. And, and, and it's that mattering that helps, you know, I think connect everybody. And so um, you've just given us a little bit of a, of a, um, a chemical and, and a physiological explanation for some of, of mattering. If you ask me, that would be my lay person um, interpretation. So thank you. Talk to me, will you, yep. ab- about one of the things that you've done in order to connect humans with each other um, and which which I absolutely love is you've gone you've gone to Russia to you know this place that we have um, um, many Americans have a very negative view of um, and fear about and but you've gone there to speak and can you talk a little bit about that please? Yeah, uh, the, it went so well. In fact, it was my best and most receptive audience, there are 450 members of the Russian Federation. Now, these are managers. These are not political people. Uh, and uh, what and year, what so year well uh, Mark, made, what year was this? It was last October. Okay, great. Thank and you. And it went, it, went, it went so well that they made a highlight reel. And if you look up Moscow, Goulston, G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N, YouTube, you'll see the three-minute highlight reel. It's in Russian with uh, English subtitles, except for a segment where you actually hear me speaking. But here was the secret, and I'm going to be writing more on this. When I went there, against everybody's advice, uh, when I met the audience, I, I assumed innocence and I assumed goodwill. I thought, they're not coming there to spend a day and a fair amount of money. These were not these were not cheap tickets, and I spoke for a whole day. Uh, they're not coming there just to prove that here's another American know-it-all blowhard idiot. <laughs> and in fact, at the beginning, and, and here and now I do this now wherever I speak, and if you speak to other audiences, I encourage you to use it. I said, uh, I think it's good to find uh, to really get where the other person's coming from before you connect with them. So let me tell you where I think you're coming from. So there's 400 managers listening listening to me in in real time Russian. So I'm being translated spontaneously by some uh, amazing person who could do that. All right. So let me see if I get where you're coming from. If your managers uh, you're charged with getting results through other people. You don't do it yourself. You got to get results through other people. Is that true? And they go, duh. <laughs> and I said, secondly, the reason you're here is your way of getting those results. If you're pushy and you're domineering, gets results, but it doesn't get the best results. Plus you and they are stressed out. Is that true too? Oh, duh. And then third, I said, if I can give you tips, tools, and tactics that are doable by you today. You don't have to buy a course. There's no upsell here. You don't have to buy the rush of the book up front. But if I can give you uh, 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 ways that are doable by you today, you don't have to like psychology or insight. Uh, and it makes uh, and it gives you a better way to get those results that's less stressful. 
would this have been worth your time and money? And they go, oh, duh. <laughs> so, I, so I had them at hello. But the key is getting where the other person comes from. And, uh, and I'll share something with you because you talk about humanity. There was an exercise I did. Uh, and plus they said at the beginning to me, you know, don't do any interactive stuff. You know, Dr. Goldstein, you're a thought leader. And I said, that's all I do. So for six hours, I was interacting with them, and there was an exercise. I said, look at the partner next to you and talk, look into each other's eyes and talk about something you're excited about. So they did that, and I said, what was that like? And they said, oh, that was really exciting. That was good. I said, give me a few examples from that, and they did. I said, now go back and look at the person next to you and, uh, and mention something you're really embarrassed about. And I'll go first. So there I am on the stage, and I said, something I'm excited about is – I'm trying to teach the world to listen to each other, and I get to do it in Moscow to the Russian Federation. That is off the wall crazy. I'm excited. And I said, something I'm embarrassed about is I'm a name dropper and a show off, and I get away with it because I know people that are impressive. But every time I do it, I feel like I'm bragging. I'd like to say it's a work in progress, but I'm getting worse. (laughs) Well, what so you're... I said that. Yeah, go on. And, well, let me, I'll finish it. And, and so they did the exercise. Uh, and I called some people out, you know, what did you share? And I said, what was that like? And Ellie, it flexed the room. And they said it was better. And I said, the reason it was better is because the first exercise, you got a burst of something called dopamine. Uh, maybe even a little adrenaline because you all talked about something you were excited about, but you can get that at a video game. You can get that anywhere else. But the second exercise, you all got bathed in oxytocin. And if any of you feel disconnected from yourself, disconnected from other people, alone and lonely, you just got a four-minute break from it. And you could just feel the whole audience. You could just feel them go, whoa, whoa, that's... That's off the that's off the that's off the wall that insight. So so Mark, I'm gonna interrupt you because we're just about running out of time. I mean I could listen to you all day as well. Um part of what I'm hearing from you is about vulnerability. And that's something that I talk about. Is that vulnerability draws and pulls people together. And so, you know, maybe Brene Brown's um talk about vulnerability is your talk about oxytocin. I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I, I want to uh, give you a chance. If, if listeners want to find out more about you, give them a, a website or two to go to. Could you do that quickly? Sure. My main website is markgoulston.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-U-L-S-T-O-N.com. You'll see a clip from the Russian video. I'm doing a big push on suicide, and if you go to Twitter, I have a uh, a tweet posted in which uh, 1.3 million impressions uh, have have come by, and it's about people sharing the people they've known who have killed themselves and their own thoughts about it. Okay. Well, and and maybe sometime I'll have you back to talk about suicide. You know, I'm a, I'm a suicide survivor myself. My father in 1990. Mark, I just I, we're, we're running out of time, and I'm sorry about that, but I have so much enjoyed talking with you. I have really enjoyed it, and thanks so very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. 
Well, thanks for having me, Ellie. Oh, you're welcome. We've been talking to uh, Dr. Mark Goulston from California, who is a um, speaker and writer about um, human c- connectivity, about listening. When we come back from our break, we'll do the C slot, um, where I'll talk a little bit about my work. Listeners, I'm always trying to give you the best. Thanks so very much. We'll be back in a minute. On AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio, Mark Goulston, I'll tell you, I, I love this stuff about neurobiology and understanding how the brain functions. Um, I do get big releases of oxytocin when I know that I'm doing good things and trying to make a difference in the world, um, you know, and we all need oxytocin a whole lot, uh, particularly right now. We do. All right. We're in my C block where I talk about my work as an idealist, about how maybe to a little degree I am trying to, you know, make some difference in the world. And there are a couple of things that I want to talk about. Um, So if you get my newsletter, The Ripple, you know that the week before last, I I did my very first online community gathering. Uh, I titled the community gathering, We're All in This Together. And uh, we had more than 40 people uh, on, the, on the talk. I think we had 41. I, I thought when I said anybody would show up, I thought maybe we might get five people. But we had 41 people uh, from across the country, not just simply here in, Min- in Minnesota. Uh, the, the kind of the theme of that, uh, we're all in this together, it was on Zoom. The theme of it was uh, about human measuring sticks that we need as humans, we need to always measure things. We do. I mean, we have birth announcements and then we have obituaries so you can measure a person's life uh, that way. Somebody has a birthday, we always want to know, how old are you? You know, Um, wedding anniversary or work anniversary, how many years? And that's because we as humans, we just, we have to be able to put things into perspective. The problem with the virus, of course, and the lockdown is that we don't know how long it will last. And this is bumping up against us um, with our human measuring sticks. So um, we were all in this together, like I said, over 40 people. Uh, it only went for an hour. Um, I had several people. I asked several people in advance if they'd share stories about compassion and empathy uh, that had occurred during the, the lockdown. We had some very wonderful stories by people. Um, one woman talked about not being able to have a birthday party for her 90-year-old grandfather. So she went to the trouble of creating this montage of videos for him from family members. It was a lot of work on her part, um, but it was very touching how she related. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and folks to um, – when I set up, uh, you know, the invite to be on this, I asked if people would donate to a couple of nonprofits. Uh, one is uh, Gender Justice, where I've talked about on another radio show, and the other was to Mosier. You may recall I've had Nick Alm, the, exec- the 23-year-old executive director of Mosier, on the show a couple of times because Nick is such an idealist. And you know what? Um, the 40-some-odd 40, 40 people, they contributed a total of nearly 800 – excuse me, nearly $900 
uh, towards those two organizations. I'm going to throw in a little bit into the kitty. So both each organization is going to get a check for about 450 bucks. It's not extraordinary, but it'll certainly keep the lights on for those organizations. So um, it looks like, you know, and, and it looks like I'm going to do another one because at the end of we are all in this together, I said I'm going to give you all and I'm going to send you an evaluation um, and, and you know, let me know what you think because I have to figure out whether it's worthwhile to do a second. We're all in this together. And out of, out of uh, 41 people who got the evaluation, do you know that 26 filled out the evaluation, which is an extraordinary amount of money? So, excuse me, extraordinary number of people to respond to an evaluation request. And usually, you know, it's – I mean, it's never over 50 percent. It's usually about 10 percent. So if you're hearing my voice right now and you participated and we're all this together, thank you so very much for doing that. And stay tuned. Look at my newsletter um, for announcements about the second we're all in this together. And for those of you who aren't on my newsletter, all you need to do is to go to my website, elitekrug.com, and you'll be able to sign up for the newsletter. You'll see that on the menu bar. All right. Second thing I want to talk about here is about the pressure cooker we're all in right now. I don't know about you, but I'm seeing uh, more and more online and unfortunately in person um, instances of humans losing their temper in public. I mean, we are talking outright yelling, people going ballistic and being incredibly mean to strangers. I mean, we are all under stress. There's no question about it. And it is a pressure cooker to some degree for all of us. Some of us are are faring much less better than others in this pressure cooker. And of course, everything is fueled by fear and uncertainty. I mean, I just got done talking with you about the fact that we have no end point here. And people are being stretched. They're being stretched with their patience. They're being stretched with their spirits. I witnessed one such pressure cooker incident the other day at CVS while I was waiting for a prescription. And I want to share about that. So you know how drugstores are set up. I mean, you've got the... You've got uh, people in the back, you know, or filling the prescription, you know, the pharmacist and the pharmacist tech, pharmacy tech. And then usually there's a window where you go to where you drop off your script or, you know, you go to the window and say, I'm ready for a refill, whatever. And, you know, somebody comes to that window and helps you. And then there are, you know, usually there's a front counter where there are the cash registers and and other things. Um, I went to the CVS on this day to go fill a uh, a prescription. Uh, the pharmacist and pharmacist techs were in the back doing their thing. Um, and uh, I went to the, you know, the, the one counter where you do your ordering or ask to get your prescription refilled. And there was a young woman, uh, maybe, maybe at old, oldest, she was 25 years old. She was African-American. I'm telling you that for a reason. I'll come back to what that reason was. Okay. The woman was very nice. All right. This 25-year-old. And I thanked her for working. I just said, I said, thank you for working. Thank you. I know that you're putting your life at risk for us. And you know what? She smiled and it was as if nobody had thanked her for a long time for doing that. She seemed surprised, but she certainly seemed appreciative. So I got done, you know, talking with her and moved from that window to another 20 feet away to, you know, near the other counter waiting for my script to be filled. And I've got to tell you, I was daydreaming. It was in the afternoon, probably, I don't know, one o'clock or so. And then um, something caught my attention. And it was um, 
It was a loud voice. And I looked over to the window where I'd just been, and there was an older white color man, maybe in his late 50s, early 60s. He was a bigger man. He was, and he was wearing a mask. And um, what attracted me to pay attention was the volume of his voice. And I heard him say to the CVS person, so this is the young woman, 25 years old, that she was no good, that he was going to call you know, CVS headquarters and tell them to fire her. And he made some other demeaning statements. But I've got to tell you, my 63-year-old ears weren't picking it all up. And I've got for a few seconds, well, several seconds, I could have sworn that the CVS person was laughing as he was saying that. And I thought, oh, they're... They're just friends and they're bantering back and forth. You know, sometimes how friends are, they say outrageous things to each other. And that's what I, for, that's at least what was my initial impression of what was going on. So I, I started to head that way. And then I, I stopped like, no, Ellie, they're just, they're just having a good laugh. <laughs> but then I realized, no, uh, no, Ellie, you're wrong about that. The man is just being mean. And before my brain could react, the man yelled one last time and he stormed off. By then, uh, a white color woman, I think that certainly she was a supervisor, had taken over for the younger woman. And she had finished up or at least finished up until the white color man, the the yeller, stormed off. Um, I stood there for a minute trying to figure out what to do. Uh, Certainly, I was not going to do nothing. I caught the eye of the African-American woman and asked her to come over. I asked her if the man had been abusive, and she said yes. I immediately apologized, saying I was so sorry that she had to endure that. I just felt so incredibly bad that she had to go through that. And again, she seemed surprised that somebody would apologize for that. She went back to work. But to me, my apology wasn't good enough. And when it came time to check out, the young woman, the African-American woman, rang me up. And when we got done, I pulled $25 out of my purse and I said, take this, do something good for yourself. I want you to know that there are a whole lot of better people in this world. She seemed shocked that I would do that. Um, but she, she took the money and thank God she did. I'm not telling you this to make you think that I'm someone great. We're just a society of storytellers and story listeners, and we just have to do better. Sometimes that literally means using what you have to momentarily level the playing field. Please don't put up with signs of public disrespect, especially for those who have historically been marginalized. We must do better. As I said, we have to do better. Okay, a big thanks to my uh, sponsors, Brending Electrolysis and Better Futures Minnesota. A big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. Brett, thanks for everything you're doing. Yo, yo humans work in this virus. And to my listeners, thank you for tuning in every week. Thank you for caring about me. And thank you for trying to make the world better. Go and continue to make the world a better place. We need you more than ever. Talk with you next week. Bye.